everybody. Turn this up in our headphones, Charles. Turning it up. <laughs> hello, 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 everybody, one and all. Welcome to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. And Dylan, can we just acknowledge the best-selling author in the room, please? <laughs> yeah, it's not just any best-selling author today, Charles. It mm-hmm. is, and we have with us today a New York Times best-selling author, Locus Award winner, and lord of all that is grim and all that is dark, the author of the first Law World Books and Shattered Sea trilogy, with the third and final book in the Age of Madness, The Wisdom of Crowds, releasing tomorrow, September 14th. Welcome to Friends Talking Fantasy, Joe Abercrombie. I'm actually getting quite excited myself <laughs> with an introduction like that. I was like, there's, there's, there's someone important and exciting that's going to appear on the show. I didn't it's, know. It's you. Show is you. No, we have been like super excited to have you on for a long time. We've been reading through all the books in the world of the first law for like, how long has it taken us doing six to nine months to read and talk about them on the show? And we've done character studies and all that. So at the it's you almost know. as long as it took me to write them. <laughs> That's very <laughs> impressive. Yeah. I mean, we spent a lot of hours recording, so we put a equal time, I'd say, you know, in, yeah. into the world of the first more effort in many yeah. ways. Exactly. I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> so now today on the eve of the release of Wisdom of Crowds, I mean, this is just the like a climactic ending to our read-through of the series. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, hey, it's a pleasure. And thanks for, you know, the attention you've been giving the books. I mean, it's always great when anyone reads them. You know, this is nonsense that I dreamed up in the middle of the night for my own amusement, (laughs) not realizing anyone would ever find it interesting so that there are people who are willing to put hours of their lives into thinking about it and analyzing it and chewing over it is, is a huge compliment. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Dylan, you know, I can picture Joe Crombie at night thinking about all these bloody murders and dismay and just a smile <laughs> on his face as he gently drifts off into sleep. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, it's somewhat alarming, but we have had an incredible time reading all of these late night murder thoughts that you've been having, Joe. So it's it's unbelievable to have you here. So grateful. And I guess we'll just get started with these questions. I, yeah, sure. Uh, let's, let's the, go. Fire in. What yeah. do you want to know? What can I tell you? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We'll put you to the test. That's our goal. (laughs) So, Joe, I've been reading your books for a long time now. I've been following uh, the stuff you've been putting out. The Blade itself was originally published in 2006. uh, And your nine books and one short story collection into this world. And we've... See, we feel like we've seen so much uh, growth and evolution uh, from you as an author. Uh, where would you say you have grown or improved most? Well, it's important to underline that I'm still very much a fresh new voice in the genre. You know, I think <laughs> oh, uh, course, of course. in that introduction, there's an implication that I might be getting long in the tooth, you know, getting on an age, <laughs> I've around a bit, part of the furniture, whereas nothing could be further from the truth, you know, still very much 
fresh on the scene, young, dynamic, punk maverick. Yes. Still turning this, this genre <laughs> upside punk. down after all these years. I think it's important to establish that as a as a baseline. Absolutely. Um, but yes. I suppose there have been a few changes, not just in the uh, amount of hair on top of my head, but also <laughs> in the writing style and approach to writing generally. I mean, I think I've learned to get a better result much more quickly and to be a lot more mm. efficient in the way that I kind of revise and go over things, certainly that. But really, you know, it's the same approach as it was at the start in, in broad terms. The idea was always to kind of do fantasy with the gloves off, do fantasy that was to some degree mm. shocking and surprising, a kind of approach to fantasy like Unforgiven is to the Western, you know, a sort of revisionist mm. style that's a bit a bit grittier uh, and nastier that focuses on the seedy side of life and the sort of grayer areas rather than the, the heroic and the, and, and the villainous, if you like, rather than keeping things black and white. And it was to get very much in the heads of the characters, and, you know, get yeah. the reader rather than seeing the world in big wide shots of spectacular mountain ranges and glorious cities on the hill with these tiny little figures a bit indistinct. I wanted to do big sweaty close-ups. <laughs> like a spaghetti mm. western you know i wanted to, the the reader to feel pressed right up against these unpleasant weird strange smelling characters and in that sense you know the approach is is very much the same you know i guess i've tried to take on more things as i've gone i've tried to you know get a lot more female characters in there uh mm -hmm. think a little bit more about the range of people that i'm that i'm covering but fundamentally i don't think it's radically different you know and obviously these books are all set in the same world and are kind of of a piece. And so it makes sense that they should feel consistent and basically have the same approach. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, we feel you've stayed very true to your dark, twisted soul as you've moved through all of this. And the, the characters, for sure, Joe, it feels like uh, that that voice and the way that you get into their heads and their perspectives, it absolutely blows our minds. And especially uh, some of those chapters that you'll write like uh, casualties and the little people uh, where you'll rapidly switch point of view. That's one of the things that we've been most impressed by that way that you so quickly ground us in a character in their voice and then, uh, move on to the next round and move <laughs> yeah it's like uh, so uh we're curious about uh your use of point of view and what inspired you to be able to flip around like that in those chapters yeah i suppose um i, I always wanted to do this thing where you were sort of very much in the head of the character and where the you know i wanted the writing to feel like it really mirrored the voice of the character and told you something about the person all the time so that you know the ideal for me is that you can read a few lines of a chapter and know straight away whose head you're in because hopefully mm -hmm. the, the writing feels distinctive and, and like you're really in conversation in an intimate conversation with that person so i suppose that's always been the uh the cornerstone i mean that that particular trick of of sort of passing through a whole sequence of extras that kind of rose out of the heroes particularly, which obviously was this, mm -hmm. this big picture war story. It was intended to show the sort of scale and chaos of a battle from both sides. Mm. And it just seemed to suit yeah. that particular story. It seemed to be a good way to, to kind of get across 
the scale of events while still keeping track of the individual caught up in the events, if you like, and a good way to get out of the heads of the main cast and get a big cross section through all the, all the sorts of people that are in there. Because, you know, there are often a lot of characters you might be interested in showing who aren't necessarily the big people, aren't necessarily the right. players, mm. movers and shakers, the people you've picked as being particularly fascinating. They're not people who'd sustain a three book story. Maybe some of them are, I don't know, maybe I'm being right. unfair. <laughs> but uh, they're, they're kind of, you know, you it's a good way to get from Marshall right at the top of the pecking order to Grunt right at the bottom and to sit and everyone in between and to really give you a sense mm. of that cross section through society. And that just seemed to fit very nicely in the Age of Madness as well, where it's it's sort of a, a bit of a social study of the, of the whole world yeah. and the world going through change. And so it felt like a great way to, to pick out some individuals and, and dip in at the heads of a whole section of different people of immigrants of workers of owners and and the mm. kind of the, the range of opinion and feeling that's that's going on i agree completely and also to me you see kind of the the consequences of some of the actions of the big people because when you write povs of your main yeah. characters you're almost always very committed to their point of view and their biases and their ignorance so you have mm. someone who's like running all these factories and then there's a rebellion and you're like I, how could this have happened right but then you go through the little <laughs> people and you see someone who had no stake in where they ended up and through circumstance and just like I just want to like I'm just thinking about going home to my family and up oh, there's a someone coming at me with an axe I guess I'm dead now and you're like wow because it's this mm. element of life is cheap and then also the consequence of the decisions made by these big people that they may have never considered that we get to consider as an author so in those cases I was like this is <laughs> incredible yeah I mean I guess I'm, I'm always uh conscious of you know in fantasy a lot of violent heroes who carve their way through scads of henchmen you know you don't you never really think yeah. too much about the henchmen there's that brilliant scene lost in powers and if you want the, you know the one i'm thinking of where a henchman dies and then he goes to visit all the friends of the henchman who are having fond memories of him and he was such a great henchman you know <laughs> and uh, yeah i think it's nice to dip into the heads of a lot of the the small kind of individuals around and that hopefully helps to to humanize the cast altogether and mm. see them as, you know, people very much inserted into society. You know, everyone's part of a, yeah. of a network and hopefully it brings that to life a little. Right. It definitely drives home the cost in a way that you, you can't just kill your main point of view characters all willy nilly and mm. you got to keep them around because you're telling their stories and then you do this job where you can get us attached to a new character and all their uh, wants and their needs and their relationships, you know, sometimes they'll be thinking about their wife back home. And then all of a sudden they take a pike to the chest and you're like, oh, wow, this, this really kills people and hurts people. Yeah. And you want the world to feel dangerous. You know, I think, uh, one of the things that frustrated me a bit about some of the fantasy that I read as a kid, you know, or, eventually after reading a lot of stuff i started to find it quite predictable you know and to and to think yeah. there was no real danger in the world you know and whenever anyone suffered it was only a kind of temporary thing you know people tend to walk away mm. from everything without a huge amount of consequences and have a happy ending and you want the world yeah. to feel dangerous you want to be scared for the people because if there's no sense that you know it really is going to be genuinely dangerous i think that that takes away a huge amount you know, but when you really do feel the world's dangerous, it changes things immensely. I mean, Game of Thrones, it's a small 
little known book. You may not be aware of it. Uh, written by a guy called George R. R. Martin. I think Game of what? Game of Never what? heard of it. <laughs> no? Could be big one of these days. Yeah. Uh, I think it'll have its moment. But, um, you know, reading the first That's of those hope. books back in the day, as I did, mm. before I was writing myself, you know, there's an important moment without wanting to give away any spoilers of this little known book, but there's an important moment where a main character <laughs> dies. And, yes. you know, that, that, that seems shocking now, but at the time it was, it was really mind blowing, you know, because I'd never oh, yeah. seen something oh, like yeah. that yeah. in that kind of book. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't happen in that kind of book. So for sure, it suddenly felt like the gloves were off and fantasy was dangerous and, you know, shocking again. And that's something I've always wanted to retain ever since, I guess. That's true. Yeah. That was a shocking moment. And it's good that we're giving, you know, these smaller books uh, some spotlight here. Absolutely. It's the least we could do. <laughs> I rearranged my shelves. I used to have my copy of Game of Thrones right to hand. Right in arm's reach. I, I was going to whip it out. And oh, no. I could try to hand you mine, but I don't think that's how Zoom works. So. <laughs> that's absolutely, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, your Game of Thrones inspiration is very, very clear. It's actually how I got into your books was uh, way back and those kind of moments in Game of Thrones that were uh, shocking and changed the way that we think about the fantasy genre, then I was like, okay, where do we go from here? And uh, your name was coming up a a ton and it it really shines through your uh, willingness to uh, we think of it like you, you use the pieces on your chessboard really, really well. Like, you know, which character belongs where and you know when it's time for uh, them to be taken off the chessboard. And uh, we've always really appreciated the shocking character moments and, in your books. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've got to be you've got to be willing to go there. I mean, I suppose it's difficult to kill off your central cast, as you were saying. I think there's there's a there's a tough balance to strike there. You want people to feel risk. You don't want them to feel it's safe. You want them to feel anyone can go at any moment. But at the same time, you want the story to be the story of something, you know, and if you progressively Mm. kill off your central cast, eventually there's a question of what is it now the story of, you know, because fundamentally if characters are the heart of it, then it's the story of a set of characters, you know? And so there are other things you can do with characters other than kill them, I suppose, which is still, you know- Are you sure? Talking and unpleasant or (laughs) dangerous in one way or another. Yes. You'll take away sometimes the thing, and we aren't in the spoilers part yet, so we'll uh, keep it vague, but you'll take away some of the things that the characters most treasure and leave them to just psychologically grapple with that. And to me, that's way more interesting than death because death is so final. It doesn't have these psychological ramifications that you'll explore. Yeah. I mean, I like to break them down and see what happens. Yeah. That's sort of the part of the fun. I think as particularly in this, in this, in the age of madness, you know, like the first law, had a lot of characters who were these outside loners. You know, they mm-hmm. were people who'd lost their families, lost their friends, decided to turn their back on what they knew, had struck out into the unknown. So, you know, Logan had left everything he knew behind. Pharaoh has escaped uh, the destruction yeah. of everything she knows. Um, Glockter's obviously this kind of withered outsider. Everyone's turned their back on for one reason or another. And so it had a lot of these people who are kind of on their own. And with nothing to lose in some cases, or with not a lot to lose, you know, people who've 
suffered a lot in the past and they're kind of trying to pick up the pieces. Whereas Age of Madness has, in general, some younger characters who are much more part of their world, you know, are quite successful within their world, yeah. perhaps, who are at the top of society in some cases, who have mm. families and friend groups around them, supporting them. Um, and so it was nice to have these people with so much to lose, you know, with yeah. so, so much on the line, with so much promise to destroy. You know? <laughs> and that was actually quite mm. fun to be able to break those sort of people down then rebuild them and see how they cope. Yeah, and that was one of the most fascinating things to me after reading the First Law Trilogy to reading The Age of Madness is that you have characters that have families and also they're in many cases descendants of previous POV right. characters as well. Yeah. So that kind of is what makes this trilogy stand out more so compared to The First Law. And we were curious about how you went about writing characters that are like, oh, Glockta's my dad. <laughs> and so, did it involve a lot of deliberation or did, did these characters come to you pretty naturally? I suppose it was kind of a mixture of things. I mean, generally the approach with these books has always been, you know, focus on the new cast, tell mm -hmm. the new story. Mm -hmm. uh, but if there is a slot there for a parent or a mentor or uh, a senior member of government that is a pain in the ass, whoever it may be, <laughs> why not fill it with someone who's already on the shelf? You know, someone who's got some wear, right. a new story, maybe know a little bit of. So mm -hmm. one can imagine that in the blade itself, you know, there might've been a previous story in which Morovia and Salt and people were the, the young heroes of that story. And there were a different set of old mm. codgers background you know? <laughs> so it's natural that as you come forward <laughs> you know the, the young heroes become the old codgers in the next in the next series and mm -hmm. i think as long as you you make sure you don't kind of slip into fan service where it suddenly becomes the show of those older people you know you've got to stick mm. in the heads of your current cast and make it about them the focus on them but it's still nice to have those callbacks and it's nice to have those characters on the shelf you know when you when you need uh, an old Lord Marshal, you know, you can stick Brint in that yeah. role. And he's never been a big, major central character, but he's a character who's been through some stuff and who you know about a little bit. And so effortlessly, you've got a load of history there. That character's mm. got a whole load of patina on them that you can make use of. Right. So in the case of, you know, obviously a lot of the central cast in Age of Madness are the descendants or the protégés in one way or another of a lot of the central cast from the first law. And so in that case, you've got some some big figures, you know, they're in the shadow of some really big figures. I mean, both mm -hmm. in, in the terms of the book, you know, they're the children of kings or the children of, you know, really senior, powerful people, huge figures within the, but also in terms of the reader, they know these people well, you know, and they loom large yeah. in their minds, hopefully. So you've kind of got a lot to pay off, but I think you've also got a huge amount to draw on, you know, the, there's a mm -hmm. lot of responsibility, but there's a lot of material. And mm -hmm. that's generally helpful. Right. So when you're looking at a character like Savine, she obviously has Glockter and RD as parents who are kind of big, yeah. vivid, powerful <laughs> figures in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of fun to imagine how they might have developed and how their relationship might have developed and what kind of upbringing a child might have yeah. had and what kind of child they would produce, you know? Yeah. <laughs> what bits of the two of them come through and what bits that are unique, you know? What bits that are unique to this period in which they're appearing? Because it's a period of huge upheaval where one generation and the next are, are very different yeah. you know? mm -hmm. so i suppose all those things were kind of on my mind but 
it's still mostly a kind of trial and error. It's still mostly <laughs> right. when you sit down and start writing what happens, you know, and I've kind of learned over time that however much planning you do and however much thought you put in before the fact, there's no substitute for sitting down and actually writing it. Hmm. And so yeah. the plan with these books was always to write all three as a draft because I kind of knew that I'd work out what I was writing as I wrote, you know, mm. and it wasn't until mm. I finished the draft that I'd really know what needed to be done to the front, to the first book to make it you right. know, work as well as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, so that trial and error part of it was still, you know, really important. And in the case of Savine, for you know, as an example, initially I gave her an internal voice like Glockter's. I thought, you know, this would make sense. Uh, oh, right. Italicized yeah. internal voice, a cunning <laughs> person who, you know, is thinking yeah. clever acid things. Uh, and it's the same as her father. So that kind of makes sense, but it didn't really work. Mm-hmm. No. And, mm-hmm. uh, I wrote the first third of that book in that way. But I was always, whereas with Glockter, it was always fun to use that voice. And there were always things occurring to yeah. me to say in that voice. Mm-hmm. With Savine, I'd always be trying to think of things to say. And I'd be saying mm-hmm. the same stuff, but in her internal voice. And the reason came to me pretty quickly. You know, the, the joy of Savine is she says whatever she thinks. Mm-hmm. There's no mm-hmm. dissonance. Yeah. Glockter doesn't say yeah. what he thinks. He always says the opposite. Yeah. You know, huh. He says one thing and he thinks another. Right. He's always guarded. He's always mm-hmm. plotting. Whereas the joy yeah. of Savine is, you know, she'll just tell you to your face and, and, and laugh <laughs> right. while she does yeah. it. You know, that's that's her power. So it didn't really mm-hmm. make any sense to have this internal voice. So I took it out. That's you know, she worked much better, you know, on her own terms, I guess. Yeah. And it makes sense as a character who grew up with, uh, I mean, Glockta grew up with a lot of privilege, but then got uh, heavily grounded. And yeah. for, as a character who hasn't had that moment yet where she's gotten humbled, that uh, why would she not just say exactly what she's thinking? It sounds like well, you I mean, trust you know, her intuition with that. Yeah. So much, as you say, so much power and privilege in so many ways, you know, she really can lord it over people quite effectively. <laughs> yeah. And that's the other thing about because. You know, we are, there's like the next generation of cast, right? And you talked about how having the previous generation to pull on as, you know, nice tools to have in your back pocket. It also brings in this theme that you have of how kind of history needs to be relearned by the next generation. You have so many wise characters mm-hmm. that are parents that we loved as main characters yeah. in previous books. And then you see like Leo, like, oh, I'll be a legend, like the bloody nine. And then I'm like, the dogman's like, oh God, what are you doing? So it's it, it, warning. Like, <laughs> so as many times as these parents have tried to teach these lessons, you, you get this added benefit when they're generation of like you get to see them make the same mistakes and you know I get the sense that history is a like just actual history is a huge influence in creating this world as well like I've seen book tours of yours where you have tons of like nonfiction history books and things like that so I can imagine this having to relearn history or being doomed to repeat it kind of theme being used when you bring in generational characters yeah absolutely and I've always kind of liked that circular that circular shape, you know, and the mm-hmm. first law obviously has a very self-consciously yes. circular shape yeah. for everyone involved in it. <laughs> and uh, I suppose fantasy often has a, a very linear shape, you know, epic fantasy of the classic Tolkien mold, you know, as a, mm. a linear shape in which people grow and change uh, yeah. and they go from peasants to kings or they go from, you know, used up men of violence to healed guys who can contribute once more and the world is often healed and there are transformative wars where things 
come good in the end, you know, and a new epoch is ushered in <laughs> at the end of those things often following right. a final battle. Whereas right. if you look at the power world as, as final battles, <laughs> there's not a lot different afterwards. You know, things often go back to how they right. were before. Seeds of the next conflict mm. is implicit in the last. And so I kind of enjoy those circular motions and the feeling that this isn't some epochal moment of change. It's just one more moment in an ongoing history that kind of has no no start no end it, it went on before the start and it will go on after and it feels like an episode within a a wider world if you like right right yeah there's that great Casca quote in uh, this would be best served cold i believe where he's like yeah and uh, people might change and might do all these kind of things but it's like uh, but given time they change back and oh, it's, yeah. it feels so true that is to the message yeah <laughs> the message that you sent uh, throughout the first law and uh, yet yeah, uh, in this downland and we're progressing through the age of madness if progress is even the right word for it <laughs> yeah and i think some readers find that kind of frustrating you know there's there are readers who mm. find Koska frustrating you know because he's this very charismatic kind of glamorous character in some ways but he's also unable to you know he's unable to be positive he's unable to make progress he always reverts and a lot of the characters revert and i find that you know a lot of people revert it's that classic thing of you know you you, yeah. you think oh i put on put on some weight i'll go on a diet you go on a diet you lose some weight but i mean you never lose the weight forever yeah. you know the weight comes <laughs> back you yeah. know it's about it's not a battle yeah. you win it's a battle that's fought daily every day and the same is true of everything same as true of being a better person, of changing yourself one way or another. So this kind of idea of wonderful transformations in people is, is sort of a, has always seemed to me a little bit of a dangerous myth in a way, because mm. things just are never yeah. that easy for people. Yeah, Especially I mean, one of, my oh, yeah. huh? one of my favorite things about the first Law Trilogy was watching Giselle unlearn his lessons. You know, to me, that's such a quintessential <laughs> thing. And it has me genuinely scared for some of these characters in... <laughs> the yeah. age of madness too we'll see where the last book goes but to me that's like it's part of human nature and that's what some of these characters capture so well and one of the things that i've always loved about the world of the first law is your willingness to commit sometimes to who these characters are and you fans love glockta fans love logan but then you commit to them being like unlearning their lessons and sometimes doing unpopular things and writing moments where they turn their backs on loved ones or family or be extra violent yeah. and doing things that are not heroic. And it's, it's what makes the world, like you said, circular and, and, and lived in. And it's part of that, that grim, dark charm we've all come to appreciate. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. You know, I suppose that was in a way it was just what emerged naturally from writing the story and, and, you know, just what seemed like the right outcomes for people. And it, with the first law, certainly a lot of it was about consciously doing the opposite of what classic fantasy might do, you know? So in, in, in some ways it's kind of obvious, you know, whatever works in fantasy would fail there. <laughs> I've always been really interested in failure. You know, I don't think failure gets covered enough. Um, things going wrong and, and war generally is the story as much of failure, if not more about failure and mistakes than it is about success. You know, we're always offered these million to one shots that just happen to come off rather than the each way bets that go wrong for people, you know, which is generally what yeah. it's about. 
Funny enough, I watched The Bridge Too Far again the other day with my son. You know, the film about Operation Market Garden, the big paratroop thing that went on at Arnhem in the mm. Second World War. And uh, that's everything in that is about failure. And it's just a constant mm. story of little mistakes that are made that add up to bigger mistakes on both sides, you know, and it's kind of just this, this fascinating thing of, you know, the one who wins is often the one who makes the fewer or the less bad mistakes rather than the one who makes that one glorious charge. You know, it's not, right. the world's not really about that. Right. Yeah. And I'll say too, all that willingness to have characters fail, have characters revert back. Uh, to me, it makes it even more rewarding when some characters do eke out that growth. And I do think we, we see that, especially in Red Country, I feel like uh, the... I would say a shy and temple. I, I perceive them as sincerely growing. Maybe not every character in that yeah. book displays growth. Uh, yeah. But when you see that happen, it's like so earned that these characters fought tooth and nail for uh, growth in, in your dark, cynical world. Well, one cannot have light without shadow, I guess. you know. <laughs> and in the darkness, a, a tiny candle flame will yeah. shine so brightly. Very very well spoken That's and I, it doesn't surprise me at all yes. that dylan reverts to talking about characters and psychology and things because joe you and dylan actually have uh something in common here you're right. both students mm -hmm. of psychology ah, uh, you, you have a bachelor's in psychology yeah. joe and then dylan here is actually a phd candidate in clinical psychology right dylan is that correct counseling counseling, counseling psychology psych, yeah. okay right. yeah serious then a lot further than me <laughs> Yeah. Well, one of the things we wanted to know, because we have books. this interest. Yeah, you're busy, Joe. We'll, we'll forgive you. <laughs> <Yeah>. but, uh, <laughs> but has any of your psychology training or background influenced your writing or your characterization at all? Yeah, I mean, I think so, especially just in the sense that I think everything you do mm -hmm. finds its way into your mm -hmm. work in one way or another, you know, everything that you're that you really enjoy or that you don't, everything you study, everything you read or play or watch, you know, it all kind of finds its way in there and little bits of little details of things will, you know, creep through into your writing. You can't avoid it. You wouldn't want to avoid it. That's where it all comes from. So definitely some bits that I've studied in psychology. And uh, I mean, in particular, one thing that I did, you know, focus on that I wrote my dissertation about was, uh, was human <laughs> error and failure. It was, you know, why mm. systems fail, why ships sink, why nuclear reactors melt down. So it was about kind mm. of the nature of failure and designing systems that fail. And, you know, a lot of the reading I've done in military history and so on is kind of, you know, looks at the battles and wars in, in a kind of similar lens of why things go wrong and why things going wrong is entirely inevit inevitable, you know, and how, yeah massive failures can be based on small misapprehensions like you know in the nuclear reactor they make a set of sensible decisions based on the reading they've got but it turns out the dial's stuck you know that kind of mistake yeah i've always been fascinated <laughs> by that um or the charge of the light brigade where you know this bizarre and stupid thing was done really because of the set of personality conflicts in the chain yeah. of command you know a set of people who all hated and uh disrespected each other and a, and a set of kind of extremely unlikely situations that just happened to, at the same time to create this you know appalling disaster and so <laughs> I've always been fascinated by those those things going wrong you know because in fantasy as I say things tend to go right for the heroes or they, they'll develop these 
outlandish, unlikely plans that then, you know, it all just comes together at the key moment. I mean, Luke, it's a million to one shot, but the torpedoes go in <laughs> the, the yeah. tube, right? In the exhaust yeah. tube and it works. Right. Yeah. I'd, I'd kind of be fascinated to know what happens if they just bounced off, you know? What's the okay. next thing? What's the next step? So, Luke would yeah, question yeah, the force, have an existential crisis, run off for a while, you know? That kind of thing, maybe. Yeah. 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 Uh, so yeah, I mean, I've, I've definitely taken a fair bit from psychology, you know, um, whether it's really about the, the psychology of the characters, I don't know. I mean, you will know, obviously psychology as a academic discipline is not much about personality of people, you know, it's about behavior, you know, and, and scientific analysis of patterns of behavior. There's a lot of statistics in it, a lot of science in it. It's quite dry in many cases. So <laughs> It's not as though I've, I've gone through massive numbers of case studies or lots of abnormal psychology or those kind of things. Um, so the character writing, which is probably what people think of as coming from psychology, not so much, but mm -hmm. definitely the, the way political systems and groups behave and fail is very much my thing. Yeah, it's surprising no one that you wrote a dissertation about failure is your... <laughs> I had no <laughs> problems that, believing that. That makes total sense, <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I mean, spoiler warning, you know, there is a book where there's a big quest and the big quest obviously fails. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people yes. find that quite weird. They don't quite get what I was driving at there, but some people do find it highly <laughs> amusing. So I suppose it all just depends yeah. on on your experience and your uh, it's possibly a, a matter of life experience as well mm. i think maybe younger people who haven't been in the workplace a lot themselves find that mm. weird and don't kind of appreciate that most things go wrong at some time or another yeah. in some way or another so yeah it took me some time to digest the world. that one but yeah <laughs> <laughs> i've come to love it and lena uh, let's can we get into spoilers dylan what do you think Yes, it's, it's let's like do 30 it. Minutes in. We, if if right. you haven't read Age of Madness, go read it, guys. Buy all the books. Um, yeah, you, you won't be, you won't, you can't go wrong. Uh, and yeah, we're we're just gonna get into spoilers for every First Law World book now that's been published. So uh, yeah, we're in it now, guys. <laughs> Free reign. Free reign. No, it's barred. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things we're most interested in, Joe, is your perspective on Logan Nine Fingers as a person. Right. And uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and we want a realistic take here, Joe. So yeah, we've yeah, got this yeah. quote we pulled from, uh, yeah, from Black Dow here toward the end of, this is in the last chapter, uh, appropriately titled the beginning uh, of the last argument Kings. Black Dow says to Logan, right. <laughs> but you love to play the good man, don't you? Do you know what's worse than a villain? A villain who thinks he's a hero. A man like that, there's nothing he won't do, and he'll always find himself an excuse. How accurate do you perceive Black Dow's perspective on Logan here as being? Well, I think from his perspective, it's entirely fair, right? But then yeah. part of the point of this is, I mean, there's another, there's a quote from Shivers earlier on when he's talking to Logan, who obviously he also regards Logan as a villain earlier on, but mm -hmm. then Logan saves his life in, in a battle and he says something along the lines of, you know, good men and evil men, it's all a matter of where you stand, you know? Yeah. So 
that was kind of what I was trying to get at. And it's true from Black Dow's perspective. Logan's a monster. He's destructive. He destroys everything he touches. He's addicted to violence. Whenever he appears, things go down the toilet immediately. Um, but then, you know, Logan asks Jezal, am I an evil man? And he says, you're the best man I know. And <laughs> right. from his perspective, that's also true, right? So <laughs> I suppose it's, it's also about, you know, we can make change and we can be different if we make the effort and we change ourselves and we change our surroundings, right? right. It's easy to be a different person when you go to a different place. Like when people go off to university, mm. you know, they can reinvent themselves and they often mm. find a, a version of themselves they're happier with. But when they go back home, it's very hard to avoid being the person you were right. before. So mm. I think that's true of Logan as well. You know, he chooses to go back to where he was. And so he can't help mm -hmm. becoming what he was. Mm. Um, and in a way, he comes back full circle again later to face that same truth about himself that, you know, mm. wherever you go, yeah. there you are. There's yeah. that going on as well. <laughs> yeah. um, so yeah. I think it yeah. is fair because, you know, Logan is in some ways the villain of the story, right? Mm. He's kind of responsible for mm. what's happened in the North. If it wasn't yeah. for him, Bethod might have succeeded in forging a kind of peaceful advanced more cultural society maybe depending on who you ask yeah i certainly thought so um so sort of is that is that unpredictable element that always destroys everything you know <laughs> people try and harness it and make use of it and they can for a while but it'll always it'll always blow up in your face eventually mm, okay. um yeah. So yeah i think it's fair he, he is nice. a villain right in a way yeah. but he's also He's also kind of great. <laughs> yeah, he, like he is great. yeah. If you're Jezal, he's like a, a fantastic guy to look up to. <laughs> Earned your trust and respect. Right. It's it's in the eye of the beholder, I guess. And I yeah. think that it, so that's something we've we've said about Jezal typically is you can take the kid out of the agrion, but you can't take the agrion out of the kid. And it is <laughs> that <laughs> like, uh, oh yeah, when Jezal is uh, out with, we call them the fellowship of the seed, uh, <laughs> heading out in a totally distant land away from everything he's known, he can grow, he can change, he can learn from someone like Logan, who's also mm. putting on his best face. And then, yeah, like you said, you go back and you're surrounded by the same people in the same place and suddenly the same behaviors start popping up for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That was always the idea. And it's great reading The Age of Madness too. You, you get a sense of a character. It speaks to their characterization so quickly, depending on their opinion of Logan Ninefingers. Like when both Stour and Leo are like, we'll be legends like the Bloody Nine. Like that's all they have to say. And you have an idea of what they're like as people. You're like, oh, okay. Like they have a lot to learn still. It's true. Yeah, yeah. looking up to Logan does generally is a quick way to identify someone as a, a bit of a douche. Yeah. I think it's better. <laughs> yes. And it's like almost every time that comes up, if there's anyone from the older generation with any wisdom around, they'll tell them something like, you just named a bunch of dead men. <laughs> and it always seems to go over their heads. Yeah, the older generation beautiful. kind of rolls their eyes sometimes. Uh, Clover will say something scathing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe a bit predictable in that line. I should have some more people who... Uh who are kind of uh, cleverly interested and excited by Logan. Maybe that's something mm. to do in the future. Yeah, yeah. that's speaking Beautiful. of the future, uh, you, you've 
boldly brought the world of the first law into a new age. Are there any plans to bring it even further? Is there some point in time we're going to have like a sci-fi book in the world of the first law? Mm. First law in space. First law in first space. Law in space. Mm. Um, I don't know. I mean, never say never. I don't really think too far ahead generally. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, not. I've no idea what the next book in the first law world would be. I've got a few ideas. But um, I think... Uh, I've always wanted to move the world forward. You know, I'm sometimes frustrated by fantasy worlds that feel like they just have been in thousands of years of stasis, you know, and are yeah. never moving or developing. Um, I like a world that feels like there's all kinds of forces of economics and progress and technology and culture kind of boiling away beneath the surface that produce, you know, a lot of the conflict within the world that even the most powerful and important characters are kind of at the mercy of these bigger social forces of change that are always, you know, boiling away. And so the industrial revolution really felt like the obvious place to go after the, the kind of mercantile and financial revolution that was going on in the first one a little bit, I suppose. And, you know, that's clearly a big one and it clearly changes society a huge amount. Um, whether you'd want to go any further, it's tough. I think there just seems to be something about guns that, feels mm. like a Rubicon, you know, it feels like a watershed. It's hard to go back from guns. I don't know why that would be, but a lot of fantasy readers seem to feel like that's their, the moment they, they, they turn off or the moment things change for them somehow. It's sort of, there's something about the face-off of hand-to-hand weapons looking someone in the eye that mm. appeals or that is noticeably different to guns. I don't know why it should be. There's no reason why it should be really. Mm. So that's one step I feel kind of slightly reluctant to take um, or that I'd want to think carefully about taking. But I think also there's probably some mileage in uh, magic's been leaving the world for a long time. I think there's probably some mileage in in the return of magic, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, the return of magic also to a much more advanced world is kind of potentially fascinating. I don't think that's something I've seen a huge amount of. The magic kind of drying up is is common to so many mm. fantasies. So yeah. have it burst back through the sluice gates, I think might be quite exciting. That's interesting. Did you have any, uh, you say you have concerns progressing the world even further, and I agree, that's a tough thing to to think about. But did you have any concerns or did like your editors or your publishers have any concerns of moving this far into the future? Like, I'm sure people would have loved for you to write uh, Glockta and Logan, uh, you, the sequel, where you're just in the world of the first law with those characters all the time. <laughs> but to be like, no, we're in a world where they're super old, actually, <laughs> and irrelevant. And now we're and now that world is gone. And there's like, you know, factories and things like, did you have any concerns advancing the world so irreplicably like that? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think you're always concerned with every book you write that it won't mm. work for one reason or another. You know, if you if you wrote your 17th Logan Nine Fingers book, you know, <laughs> maybe you'd be concerned it wouldn't do as well as the 16th. You know, after a certain point in time, people get bored. You know? So you're always trying to balance the familiar, what people liked last time with, you know, something new that will keep them excited because people always say they wanted, you know, the same as the last album. But they don't actually. They want something Until they get it. new in some way they can't yeah. really describe, right? I mean, Agreed they're never going to tell you, I don't yeah. want that thing I liked before. I want something else, but I can't tell you what it is. Mm. But that's basically <laughs> what they do want. So, mm. you know, you've got to always be trying, I think, to 
to move things forward. Apart from anything else, you know, you spend years on a, on a few a series of books like this. Mm-hmm. And although readers might spend weeks with it and want more, you, you're probably sick of it by that point. You've not <laughs> got anything new to say. So right. you've got to keep sort of pushing yourself and challenging yourself mm-hmm. and keeping yourself to some degree excited and uncomfortable uh, because that's where you produce stuff that's worth reading, I think, on the whole. So, you know, mm-hmm. I think you, you're always worried about moving things on or changing things or new sets of characters or development in the world that you kind of know instinctively it's better than the alternative of sort of stasis where you become a kind of boring pastiche of yourself, perhaps, or there's a risk of that anyway. Um, so I suppose I was, I was worried a bit that people might not like it, but I felt like it was its own thing enough. You know, there's obviously steampunk and things right. out there that, you know, tackle some similar trappings, but that always mm. feels a bit of a aesthetic thing it's just you know sticking valves on stuff it's not really about the (laughs) social side of the revolution in that same Mm -hmm. way i don't think so it felt like it you know industrial revolution in fantasy was something i hadn't seen much of it felt like it'd be interesting and it felt like it naturally produced a lot of conflict and drama without much effort you know because you have all this Mm. stuff going on the rich against the poor the traditional monarchy and nobility against the kind of rise of money and innovation, you know, right. and conservatism against progression and growth. And so, you know, immigration against, you know, people wanting to keep things as they are. So there's naturally all these forces, rural and urban, another big one, you know, the growth yeah. of cities and the shriveling yeah. of the economy, that kind of thing. Mm. So naturally every character you know has these tensions and these uh, antagonistic relationships with other people just because of where they are mm-hmm. within what's going on mm-hmm. and that felt you know interesting and dynamic and, and there was plenty to work with there so i never really you know i, I always worry that a book's going to be bad and won't work <laughs> won't go down well, you know and usually they are bad to begin with because that's what happens when you first write them you know they you write the bad version then you make it better that's what the process is. Mm. Um, so it was it was challenging in its way, but I think to the right amount, and hopefully, it will it will work for readers. I mean, there'll always be people who liked other books more, you know, because if you yeah. do different things, then some will work for people, some won't. You know, some people really love Red Country, some people don't like Red Country, but they like Best of Cold, you know. And I kind of like yeah. the fact that. You know, some readers have very different opinions about what my best book is, about what, you know, my most effective character is. And I think that shows that, you know, I've, I've done some, tried to do some different things each time, which is the probably the best you can hope for. Yeah, well, we've always appreciated your willingness to try on new genre, I guess, uh, you know you're always writing in fantasy but you'll mm. go western you'll go thriller with best of cold or more typical military fantasy with the heroes and give it your own joe abercrombie twist to the uh, tropes of that and I'll, I'll say it like red country is uh, my favorite of the standalones and i i right. loved seeing you work with that western setting and those tropes is a lot of fun oh yeah i mean i really enjoyed that and Actually, it was quite a hard book to write at the time, but I, I love Westerns and I, I kind of love that whole feel. And there's a lot of kind of Western-y stuff in the first lore, even, you know. I mean, Logan's quite a Western style, a character, I think, yes. in many ways. Yeah, um, I fit that well. 
And so, yeah, Red Country yeah. was a lot of fun, but not everyone. I mean, I think the, the interesting thing about Westerns is it's a very, uh, it's a strong spice. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, mm. it's kind of very obviously Western. You know, it's windswept streets and it's cattle drives and it's very Westerny in a way that the heroes, you know, the heroes is sort of every war. It doesn't feel like one thing yeah. or another. It's quite easy to do that. Um, so Red Country, if you don't like westerns, it's just gonna it's gonna be kind of unpleasant for you. There's there's no strong doubt. spice. I like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, yeah. there's no chaps. Should we? And, oh yeah, and the, of course, and the the ten gallon hats and all that. <laughs> the spurs. <laughs> uh, yeah. Dylan, I think it's time we enter into some of these more hard hitting questions about some of these characters that we were talking yeah. about earlier. What do you think? All right. Yeah. Yes. All right. <laughs> Why does Glockta do this? <laughs> well, if your impression is that that's a routine question he's asking, which will at some point be answered with a sort of straight up thing, <laughs> well, Wednesday mornings he has yoga, so Thursday is the only time he can do this. You know, if it's going to be a technical answer <laughs> of that kind, I think you're probably barking up the wrong tree there. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. why he does it is the is the eternal open question of his of his life right yeah. so he actually he asks it to himself one more time i believe in this uh, mm. in this final book mm. i'm not spoiling anything there oh great and tease that's a, a kind of nice tease it's a key a key moment because he don't think he's actually mm. said it elsewhere in the series but of course readers will know that he's endlessly asking himself that question so mm. someone else asks him and he has a wry laugh, mm. himself, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I think you find that fine, quite humorous. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's uh, definitely the the musing of it and the asking of it is much more interesting than is the uh, the answering of it. And I'm sure it's it's just so many complicated factors for Glockta that he's always trying to mull over. I mean. It's uh, yeah, we're <laughs> we're only expecting more musings from the author who gave us Glockta's. Yes, internal we're not monologue. expecting definitive, <laughs> <Yes>. epic, grand <laughs> reveals here. I don't think for when it comes to Glockta's musings. Yes. Well, I suppose you know he's a he's a guy who's been massively damaged, right? He's a, he was sort of an ex yeah. exploration of consequences talking earlier about heroes who don't suffer these massive consequences really in fantasy and they can be very violent and have violent things done to them but basically come away fine he's he's a guy who has not come away fine and he right. sort of finds himself outside of society and the only way he can make a contribution is through doing what was done to him in effect because he's become very good and has a very good insight into it right um but he sort of refuses to be useless, right? He refuses to just sit back. He, he insists on being effective. And I guess that's mm. the, he says at one point to Bayard something like, you know, I'm happy to die, but I refuse to lose. Yes. yes. So he yes. wants yes. to still win. Um, yes. And I suppose right. if there's a reason why he does this really, that is it. He's, mm. he's a little bit like Bayard yeah. in many ways, you know? <laughs> In a world that has kind of lost a lot of meaning to him, winning is one of the few things that mm. has still got meaning. Yeah. And that's super interesting thinking too about Savine, who when we first meet her, the it's I think the chapter is called Keeping Score. And right. it, yeah, she's uh, 
pretty much talking about at the end of it, how she, she doesn't even care about money. She's always had lots of that. It's just how else are you going to keep score? So you get to see how <laughs> that Galacta influence gets passed down. And uh, even if it's not hereditary, it was maybe taught. Nature over nurture. <laughs> yeah. 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 Nurture yeah. over nature. Oh, yeah. yeah astute it. observation. Yeah. yeah. That is a very Glockta thing to say. Right. Uh, <laughs> And it gets to the heart of what she's about quite effectively as well, you know, that she's interested in being on top, in beating the competition. Yeah. She She's not really, as you say, she's not interested in making money or or winning except to, you know, prove her superiority over other people. Right. Really, and she has no reason right. to keep making investments and belittling others. She just continues to do it because she likes to win, like Lakta, like Bias. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> yeah. What else would there be? Like... Yeah, yeah. So. This okay. is some people kind of talk about, you know, will Bayaz beat Callal? But I don't think Bayaz wants to like beat Callal because mm. if he did, who'd be the mm. audience? Yeah, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's genius. He's the he's the one person who can acknowledge that Bayaz is the best, right? That's what he wants. Yeah. Yes, uh, it's almost that Polder and Croy situation <laughs> where <Yeah>. it's, <laughs> it's in the rivalry more than the actual winning of the thing. And yeah, they never yeah. realize they're pushing against each other so hard that if one of them was removed, the other would just fall flat on his face. <laughs> exactly. Mm, right. Well said. Yeah. And I do think that's something it seems Baez appreciates about Glockta. Like you said, there are some similarities there and he he gives him that uh, breakdown of everything he's done. It seems like just for the, you know, he's got Phil Glockta in, but he's reveling in it. And he wants uh, to be acknowledged. Yeah, it's, yes. Yeah. <laughs> he just wants to be seen. He's like, here's one of the few people that will un- actually understand when I start bragging. This was good. Yeah, most of these, most of these apps won't even understand right the level of my <laughs> glorious triumph you know but i'm feeling yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love watching bias revel in bragging it's so good <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that moment where he's just yelling he's like i'm greater than aos himself we always <laughs> quote that it's just bias yeah. the beauty of his uh, bounce of great power and just absolute pettiness is <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's vast pettiness is, is an important definitely an important part of that. yeah the banal the banal yeah. is just kind of petty middle management really more than anything <laughs> yeah. oh that's so good yeah uh, we've always Jokes. wondered, like, what a POV from Baez would look like. Have you ever considered, like, a sharp end style story from Baez's mm. perspective? Or is that just too hard to write or you, you don't want to go behind the curtain too much on Baez? Yeah. Funny so enough, I, I, just I, he made. was a point of view in my very first kind of abortive take. Oh, wow. The story. But it very obviously doesn't really work very well. Huh. I mean, because it, it it means you have to either just avoid the elephant in the room and, you know, trick the reader by not telling them what's going on in a way that is entirely unconvincing. You know, sometimes you can get away with not sharing everything that's happening with the reader, you know. So mm. in The Trouble With Peace, since we're in the spoiler bit, you know, Ricker pulls a, pulls a fast one um, and... Yeah you're in her head, but she doesn't explain to the reader what she's thinking, right? Which mm-hmm. is kind of sort of slightly cheating, maybe. 
but it's fine. It's not a big one. Yeah. And it soon yeah. pays off. But, you know, he couldn't sit in Bayer's head at the start of the blade itself without understanding what was going on and what he's up to, you know? So <laughs> it's the wrong place to be as well. You know, I, I wanted to be with the little people, the little ants on the, on the board who don't understand what's yes. happening. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's how you can trick the reader in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think he's in, in Bayaz's head is the right place to be. It would sort of demystify what's better mystical. I mean, I think I feel that's the true, same right. way often about magic, you know. And again, being in Bayaz's head, he'd be thinking in magical terms sometimes. And then you'd have to kind of explain it in a way or make it literal. And you make literal and obvious and concrete what is much better guessed at, mm. hinted at, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think I would uh, probably stay out of Bayaz's head. <laughs> Yeah, if you were, if you had to write a short story, it would just have to be something so petty that had no implication to the story at all. But I see what you're saying. He's like, he is, even though he's barely represented in some of these books, he is the master puppeteer, right? So to get behind his head too much, that man behind the curtain, essentially, it would have, yeah. it would have undone all the first law too, for sure. Yeah, no, I think yeah. so. Even a glimpse of the puppeteer can be extremely alarming. And (laughs) as Baez, make sure we all know. Yes. (laughs) So you need those puppets dancing, Joe. Yeah, watch the pretty meat puppets. (laughs) So this question we're about to ask is one that's probably the most heavily like debated people trying to figure it out in the first law community is there anything supernatural going on with the bloody nine or has it always been logan yeah people ask that a lot and i mean i suppose i don't like too much to get into (laughs) yeah you know to discuss the content in that way Mm -hmm. outside of what's there Mm -hmm. because in a way if it's if it's vague and it's a bit unclear, then I feel that's because it should be, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and I'm not sure I've got some explanation for you that is gonna, you know, wrap it all up. Right. So that there is some doubt, I think is fine. To me, it's a less interesting character if he's somehow not responsible for what he does or what he is though, right? It's demystifying right. what's better mystified, right? It and that's is, what we love about is. Logan so much. Right. You can love him and also recognize the horrible war crimes he's committed, but still find him likable. It's like, yeah, he killed that little kid for no reason. He killed his best friend, but what a great character, you know? I love well, his catchphrases. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was sort of my take on, <laughs> on you know, Norse berserker mm-hmm. myths a little bit. Yeah. You know, and, and, I suppose it seemed natural there might be a sort of alternate personality that someone like that might have. Mm. So it's sort of a little mm. bit split personality-ish, though. I mean, you, of course, will know that that's all a, a little bit mythologized and mm. whether any such real condition exists is sort of hard to say. There's definitely contention, yeah, about that. It certainly comes up yeah. a lot more in stories yeah. than it comes up in reality, right? So definitely, I mean, it was, it was a, a berserker take, and obviously he has this kind of slightly magical route as well. But to me, it's really about, he's a guy who is addicted to violence and addicted to what he is, you know, addicted to the status it gives him and not really happy unless he is, you know, able to demonstrate his dark side in that way and sort of claim the respect mm. that he gains from being feared really. 
he loves to be feared. Yeah. He, he loves to pretend that he's not, but he kind of does when it when it when it comes down to it. He can't avoid, <laughs> you know, playing up to that role. For sure. And he right. naturally puts himself in positions, you know, where the bomb is going to go off. Yeah. You know, even if he can't yeah. necessarily control the bomb completely, he could he could take the bomb off into the desert and put <laughs> it up there where no one's going to you know mind. But he doesn't. He sticks it among the people that he knows and. You know, he, he, he can't help himself. So I suppose that's really what it's about more than, hmm. more than anything. Right. Yeah. It's just a part of this whole oh, Logan being able to try to project his bad behaviors onto uh, some other entity. And whether it's supernatural, whether it's just part of him is less important than the grappling of that question. And yeah, it's it's so interesting with Logan. You can get caught in his almost like passivity with which he views the behaviors. And it's like, oh, somehow I just ended up with this sword in my hand floating like oh, a no, leaf down again. to Carleon. It's like, yeah, it's like, it's like literally <laughs> you had this point where you could have gone anywhere and you went right back to the North to settle scores. But mm. it's easy with how tight you are to the perspective and to how he sees himself, where I think a lot of readers like th- think of Logan as this like almost victim of circumstance more than someone who, actually puts himself in the position yeah yeah i think i think you know a lot of people do and you know i, I did everything i could to make him as likable as possible so i suppose <laughs> yeah. you know that just shows that yeah. in a sense succeeded you know you want the people to feel complicated and conflicted and and contradictory in some mm. ways as people you know very much are and you know right. that goes back again to black Dow thinking of him as a as an absolute villain right. and jezar thinking of him as the best man he knows you know in a way he's both those things yeah. Yeah. depending on the circumstances yeah and that's what i love about your characterization is because it's this idea of like it's not good people doing good things and bad people like evil people doing bad things it's it's just like people that you know that occasionally do horrible things and they don't necessarily have a good reason it, in the age of madness i think of broad quite a bit because mm-hmm. he's another yeah. character who does horrible things sometimes or violent things sometimes but he's you wouldn't say he's evil or or anything like that it's again this idea of like people in certain circumstances maybe they're addicted to violence but they're not evil they still want to do good things and they're 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 heroes in their own heads sometimes more so logan than broad broad is very self-deprecating but um it's Mm. just that idea of like it's not always good versus evil like maybe a modern fantasy book would be it's 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 exploring what happens when like normal people do evil things yeah and i suppose that whole thing of good against evil was commonplace in the fantasy i was reading as a kid and uh and then i started reading things like um you know james elroy's la quartet the noir la Mm. books you know the la confidential is based on you know, those are books that are incredibly murky and uh, dark and where the protagonists are very seedy and, you know, have all, all kinds of demons and difficulties. And I was just kind of fascinated by the, the way those books work and how these very murky characters interrelate and occasionally do heroic things and occasionally do appalling things, just as you were saying. So mm. LA Confidential was actually a really important book for me. And, and in that book, funnily enough, mm. you have effectively three kind of central figures, central male figures who are 
a kind of guy with an incredibly violent, dangerous temper who can't escape his his bloody nature, mm -hmm. uh, sort of used up outsider with a, this world weary attitude to everything. <laughs> and this sort of smart ass young guy with a massively high opinion of himself <laughs> who wants to climb the, the sort of wow. official ladder. So there may be some great <laughs> story. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, that's yeah. We'll have to give LA Confidential over you just to see if we can notice some of those parallels there. And uh, yeah, I know it, it, you've got a lot of different inspirations. I've heard you uh, talk about things like Lonesome Dove. I've heard you talk about films. Uh, something that I really have wanted to know for a while, Joe, is do you ever watch Quentin Tarantino movies? I feel like he's got a very uh, a voice that you appreciate. Like you both have this ability to uh, wink at and twist genre tropes. You have this juxtaposition of your gritty, intense violence with humor. You ever watch his movies? They resonate for you? So oh, yeah, I mean, well, and Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. So his first two big films, you know, and also yeah, True uh, Romance, which he wrote within direct, but wrote those those films were were huge for me at the time. Those mm. two particularly, I mean, particularly Pulp Fiction, which kind of really blew my mind at the time in the nice. way it was organized and the way the kind of narrative was broken up. Mm. I mean, just so clever. And yeah. perhaps now yeah. it seems kind of almost obvious because it's so sort of imitated and influential. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it almost seems a bit over the top, a bit pleased with itself, a, a bit familiar, you know, but at the time it was really quite amazing. And Reservoir Dogs, likewise, a brilliant film, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of what he's done since I've been a bit more kind of on the fence about one way or another. There's things I've liked and things that I've been, I've been a bit more kind of, I don't know. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think his early stuff's brilliant. And it's that, as you say, that fusion of kind of extreme darkness and violence with, you know, funny things erupting out of nowhere. But also <laughs> the kind of uh, the conversational nature of things. It's something that... Um, Elmore Leonard, another writer that I like a lot, mm -hmm. Justified, you know, is uh, based on a short story of his and has very much his tone. He does this thing where, you know, every idiot in the story, every thug or, you know, guy in the background or irrelevant cop has some sort of persona, something going on. Yeah. Some fight he's having with his brother, some hobbies into, you know, everyone feels right. like they're, they're kind of a real person somehow. Right. And Tarantino, again, will do this thing of he'll just let people talk. He's not mm -hmm. interested in shoving things along. He'll do these long, discursive, rambling kind of conversations where people are just talking about stuff. Mm -hmm. And that sort of observational quality within a genre piece, you know, mm -hmm. where you expect things to be moving yeah, along. Yeah. I've mm -hmm. always been quite kind of fascinated by that. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's something I kind of like to do is just let people talk at length, which perhaps some people sometimes find a bit dull, but I... I just find that's where the really good stuff is. Mm. You know, it's not really the sword yeah. fights at all. Well, the sword fights become interesting because you're interested in the people, right? And you get interested in the people through totally the dialogue. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I've I've been wanting to ask you that forever since Best Served Cold. Uh, I I recommend it a lot of times with a Kill Bill reference. So right. It's got some of that kind of feel to it. And uh, yeah, I think 
it's it's so interesting to hear that you actually are <laughs> into him and you have all his thoughts and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's, that's awesome. So cool. I know I know Charles has a has a question about a oh. side character that he he would feel like we've been remiss if he didn't ask. So <laughs> that's uh, true. And as yeah. as much as we love the books, we are obsessed with the audiobooks as well. Oh, yeah. Stephen Pacey is absolutely incredible performances across all of these books and oh no doubt yeah brilliant it's just commitment to yeah. all of these different scenes and his deliveries and his lines they're incredible and even some of those awkward sex scenes he gives it his all to which you gotta oh, respect no <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but he you could just tell that he gets like what the story's about and he's able to deliver narration and dialogue in a way that only someone who generally has an appreciation for the book and understanding of it could could do and to me it's like my go-to recommendation for an audiobook for sure um and sometimes his voices they just stick in my brain and we talk about them on the show and one of the ones that kind of took (laughs) off you know there's the scene where severard is tailing pharaoh and pharaoh i can't even believe i'm telling you this joe this is (laughs) and and pharaoh like has severard like knife to the throat situation and he's and he's like why shouldn't I kill you right now? Give me one reason. And then Stephen Pacey's just like, my birds, my birds. <laughs> <laughs> and Pharaoh's like brain kind of bit. short, short wires. And she just lets him go. She, you know, she has like a lapse of her memories of her dad with birds. And she doesn't know how to handle oh, this moment. And just lets him go. And so we're always like, my yes. birds, my birds. And so we were wondering, you know, with the end of... <laughs> <laughs> the last argument of kings severard's unfortunate demise what is the canon for these birds did they starve in the cage or did they somehow like old bill and lord of the rings get to go off and fly with other birds and live happy full lives can we get some head cannon <laughs> that we can put in the first law wiki it. maybe <laughs> Is it, I, I couldn't, well, I, you know, we, we said, spoke earlier about how I'd rather not, you know, mm-hmm. pin down things. Keep, keep things uh, mystified, yeah. Yeah. You you know, know, I, I'm not, you don't I, have to now. I want to keep your artistic integrity <laughs> intact. Exactly. Well, it's not something that I've personally given that amount of thought to, but I suppose hmm. <laughs> the wonderful thing about being a reader of books is that you can, you know, hmm. invent your own possibilities. Hmm. I'm sure many things readily emerge. There were mm. some birds, weren't there, released at the uh, at Savine and Leo's wedding? I think they had some yeah. birds lost away. You know, at a key moment. And I think maybe um, Duke Regant had some birds going off at his coronation as well, right? Yeah, like yeah, a... they might have died though. If I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they they went off just as everyone had like died. <laughs> everyone had died on stage. Suddenly the birds. Were released. They went up. Yeah. So maybe some of Severids were among one one or other of those. Who knows? They could have gone on to great things to start them mm. in a way. I yeah. see. You're you're keeping your chess pieces close to the vest, I see. Okay. Well, I might want to, you know, write a short story about those birds at some point. Who knows? I can respect that. Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. We don't need you, like you said, some things are better left um, <laughs> mystified. Maybe someday you'll do another um short story collection and we'll we'll find out a little bit more maybe but we won't ask you to play those pieces so definitively on the show you know no well i've, I've got a short story coming out next year funny enough mm. so these mm. uh 
each of these books, I did a kind of edition for Waterstones in the, the bookstore in the UK, which has a short story in it. So there's there's three short stories, one for each book. Mm. They kind of do a, a a typical clever ass thing. Like the first one's called The Thread, and it starts on the cotton fields, and it you know it starts with the ex-slave on a cotton field then it goes to a cotton merchant in Degoska then it goes to you know a guy who spins the thread in a factory mm. and it ends up in Savine's dress that's kind of the <laughs> and there's another one with a with a, a diamond in Orso's crown and there's one with a with a knife that someone's killed with you know it starts off in the mm-hmm. or in the ground and so on so it's the idea was to do some industrial processes that show you something about the mm. world mm. So those three are going to be packaged up into a novella, but along with a fourth one that I've done as well, which is kind of about the great change generally. And wow. so subterranean nice. press is going to do that. That'd be very interesting. Maybe, maybe just floating the idea as a fifth one, you know, someone, you know, someone hasn't been paying their rent. So they go to a victim, open the door, it's a cage full of birds in here. Hmm. Yeah. What it's should possible. we do? Yeah. Uh, Please give me one second. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Joe is now going to write down in his notes. <laughs> yeah. We are getting Severard's birds. Maybe you could co-author this. I saw you were very disconcerted. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Oh, there he... uh, someone just came for one of my son's friends to take him away. Oh, I see. I see. Well, um, it, it has been a while already. We don't want to keep you too much longer. Dylan, is there anything we need to ask Joe Abercrombie, author of The World of the First Law, while he's here on the show? I think we just have to say thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. Oh, hey, this has pleasure. been Sorry to cut it short uh, in that slightly no, bizarre manner. Uh, uh, oh, no, no, no. We're, we're over the hour. We thought you already, were off so. writing that fifth yeah. book. You know, so I had to get these notes down quick while the inspiration struck, you know, just making sure you yeah. got some ideas down before you forgot. Yeah, that is important. Mm-hmm. When an idea comes, you've got to grab that. Exactly. Seventh one appeared, and I yeah. want to catch that quickly. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, Joe, this is uh, quite an honor for us. Thank you so much for coming on yeah. the show. I couldn't think so of a better grateful. way to end this World of First Law read-along that we've had on the show than than having you here. So thank you so much yeah. for your time today. Oh, look, it's been a pleasure, guys. And thanks for, you know, engaging with the book so sort mm. of deeply and, and, you know, profoundly and taking them so seriously. I really oh. appreciate it. It's lovely that people are out there doing that and um you know i will tweet this out to everyone i can and hopefully people will watch and enjoy it nice Nice. something to be said about using twitter which is icon as a bird he's still caught on the birds joe (laughs) there's some deep capital l literature metaphor in there (laughs) one of severed's birds that got away right exactly That's right. Well, Joe Abercrombie, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Wisdom of Crowds drops tomorrow. Get in line now for the for the big release. Um, looking forward to the audiobook as well. I'm assuming Pacey will return yeah. for the audiobook. So. Same day. Same day. Wow. So I'm yeah. super, super excited about that. So guys, go check them out. Yeah, do so. And I hope you enjoy the, the final book. But if you don't, just uh, don't call me again. praise only for joe guys please and uh, maybe you had a bad copy so get another one and then see maybe if the ending's a little different yeah so okay well everyone thank you so much for listening and as always guys go forth and conquer friends